If you have a Bible, would you find the sixth psalm? Psalm 6. While you're finding that place, just in case you're wondering, let me relieve your fears. My tie has nothing to do with any affiliation of any team. I simply chose the one I liked this morning. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, bless you. We have more in common than you might know. Even if you do like football, we have more in common than you might know. Psalm 6 actually speaks about some things that we have in common, and that is that we grieve. Each and every one of us, for various reasons, grieves. And I want to speak to you this morning about faithful grieving from the sixth psalm. And I would ask you, what is the worst thing that could happen to you? Could it be physical illness or injury? Could it be to lose your job? To lose a friend or worse, a loved one? To be shamed on social media? Could it be the worst thing to find yourself at the end of your life and alone? As Christians, we long for the day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that is our future hope. And yet presently we must, we must wait. And the waiting of our lives is not without its woes. We hope for our We wait for our hope to be revealed, but if you have any connection with the outside world, with other people, with friends or family or co-workers or any other circumstances, then you uh, may agree with me that our hope seems to linger, that we have reason to persevere, but in that perseverance, we don't find that act easy. Life in this world is difficult. Even Jesus told his followers, in this world you will have trials of many kinds. And here in the sixth psalm, we will read the words of King David, Israel's greatest king, not in his glory as the leader of a nation, but in the groans of a troubled man, overwhelmed with despair. Would you follow along in Psalm 6 as I read? To the choir master, with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. In verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And we might ask, where does the psalmist's despair come from? 
And some would say that David is reflecting upon some sin in his own life. And so they have called this the first of seven penitential psalms in which David thinks about and sorrows over his own sin. But as I read Psalm 6, I don't see any clear confession or call to repentance for sin in his life. So maybe David is grieving before the Lord because of attacks from his enemies. That's a common theme in the Psalms, especially from David. And his enemies are mentioned in the last four verses of this Psalm. But he almost mentions them as a point of reflection rather than the subject of his despair. So I'm not sure that we can pinpoint just precisely where David's sadness has come. But as we read Psalm 6, that's not the primary purpose. That's not the primary intention of this psalm. And that's not where we must focus our attention today. We must keep in our minds the purpose of all the psalms. See, the psalms are songs of praise. This is a book of praises that was first sung by God's people Israel inside the temple These 150 psalms are not just encouraging poetry for us, but they were the hymn book of God's people Israel. So this psalm would be taken to corporate worship and sung together as a people. These psalms are included in scripture as songs, songs of praise. And as songs, they are poetry that reaches deep into the heart's of the writers as they reflect upon the Lord's interaction with his people. And as they reflect, whether in lamentation or in grief or in confidence or in celebration, the Psalms are leading readers or really singers to praise the Lord, to, to recognize and praise what one writer has said is the main lesson of the Psalms, and that is that God reigns, God is great, and God is good. And this is why we love the Psalms. Do you love the Psalms? We identify with them. They are emotional, even for those of us who aren't very emotional. They express the heart cries of people who who have troubles and problems and needs with the Lord. They are cries to the Lord, intense feeling, and they they express the clarity of our human condition, which is resolved only by the mercy of the Lord. And Psalm 6 fits right in this model. Maybe we can't pinpoint just exactly why David is despairing, but without a doubt, we sense the solution to David's problems. We read of the foundation of David's hope, And actually, this is the conflict for the psalmist here. His hope is the Lord. His solution to his problems is the Lord. His grief can be relieved by the Lord. But the more that David grieves, the more distant the Lord seems. See, the worst thing that could happen for this psalmist, for David, is to be separated from the presence of the Lord. Many things, many troubles were apparent in David's life. Even David's life is filled with with sin, terrible sin. But the worst thing in David's estimation is to be distantly separated, abandoned, forsaken by the Lord. 
He prayed about these things often. You may remember Psalm 51:11, "Cast me not from your presence. Take not your holy spirit from me." In Psalm 22, he said twice, "Do not be far off from me." Because to be separated from the presence of God is terror. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Philistines captured the ark of God? The ark was the symbolic representation of the presence of God. The high priest Eli had a daughter-in-law and his daughter-in-law spoke in a prophetic way and even named her son Ichabod. That word Ichabod is a declaration that the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. When the glory of the presence of God left the nation of Israel, there was terror. But years later, a whole book of the Bible later, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, do you remember what the nation, and particularly David, did when the ark was brought back to Jerusalem? The Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all his might. The ark came into the city with the sound of shouting and a horn. Because the people were celebrating, glad to see that this representation of God's presence was back with his people. But this personal lament in Psalm 6 shows us that David feels that the more that he grieves, the more separated from the Lord he feels. And this is a real problem for people, for humanity. This separation is defined first in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. What happened? But God expelled them from Eden out of his presence. Separation from God is an indication of sin. It is an indication of judgment. In the judgment in eternity, all those who've refused to turn to the Lord will be cast out, eternally separated from the presence of God. Separation from God is judgment. And we pray that that despair is what leads people to repentance. To desire the presence of God and blessing and to turn to him. And restoring the presence of God to a sinner is is actually one way to think about and look at salvation. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But not just brought near. In Christ, we not only experience the presence of God, but... Ephesians 2 goes on to tell us that we have access in one spirit to the Father. We are no longer separated from God, but in Christ, we who have been saved from our sin are brought near to God, even to have access to God at the throne of grace. But we are not just truth in our minds kind of people, right? We don't want to just know things. We want to feel them. We want them to be readily accessible to even our emotions. Because God created us not just with minds, he created us with, also with wills and emotions, right? We don't want to just know it, we want to feel it. And in Psalm 6, David is having a really hard time feeling the glad presence of God. He is a man with whom we can sympathize. Because we often relate our trials to being separated from God too. Maybe not immediately, but in trials, the slope is slippery. Can you identify with this progression of prayer? Lord, this is hard. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I can't do this. Lord, how long is this going to last? Lord, why are you doing this? 
Lord, don't you still love me? And at the bottom of the pit, Lord, are you there? We who put so much emphasis on the goodness of God, and rightfully so, can slip into the trap of thinking that if good is not present with us, then God is not present with us. And so maybe we can identify, maybe you can identify with David's despair here in Psalm 6. In this landslide of emotion that he follows, we can sink with him, understanding his grief. Notice some markers of his grief. In verse 1, he feels like a sinner being judged. Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He's not actually praying that God would not rebuke him or that God would not discipline him. He, he's asking that God wouldn't rebuke him in anger, that God wouldn't discipline him in wrath because he knows that the, the anger of God, the wrath of God, is indicative of God's justice. And if the Lord marks iniquities, who can stand? David is asking for God to deal with him like a son rather than like a perpetrator. He's asking God, let judgment be with mercy, with grace, not with anger and wrath. Not only that, in verse 2, he feels physically weak. Be gracious to me. He uses words like, I'm languishing. Heal me. My bones are troubled. His inner troubles, his spiritual and emotional anxiety has, has brought about physical weakness. This is a deep anxiety. Note the contrast here. His bones are troubled. The part of his physical body that should be and is the strongest is where the trouble lies. Friends, if the bones are troubled, the whole body is troubled. David is not necessarily describing actual physical illness here. He's, he's relating to us how the, the turmoil inside him is, is welling up into weakness and frailty on the outside of him. You can probably relate to that. How many times have you been so worked up about something that your stomach aches or you actually get physically sick? Well, David feels also inner anxiety, not only in his physical body, but, but also his soul is troubled in verse three. Again, he's pointing out that his, his whole person is involved in this anxiety. Inside and outside, he's a wreck. It's like he just woke up from a terrifying dream and can't decide, is this real or is this just a dream? In the Psalms, this word troubled is the response to God's wrath and God's fury. It's how the people respond when God hides his face from them, when God shows himself strong against pagan Gentiles. Dismay and trouble describe a man who has fearful expectations of, of God's wrath, God's judgment. Whatever it is that David is experiencing, his, his whole person, all of who he is, feels as if he is on the receiving end of God's anger. He feels less like a friend of God, less like a son of God, and more like an enemy of God. But it gets worse. He feels like God is not concerned about him. In the second part of verse 3, But you, O Lord, how long? His grieving turns to groaning. He doesn't know just what to say. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, Lord, 
And we could fill in the blank in a number of ways. But you, Lord, are not troubled at all. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, Lord, you're not concerned about my trouble. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, Lord, you can fix my trouble. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, Lord, how long are you going to let this trouble last before you act? He feels also like he is more committed to the Lord than the Lord is committed to him. And so in verse four, he appeals to God's covenant faithfulness. This is the highest appeal that he can make. Lord, act according to your covenant love. Look in verse four. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Whenever you read that phrase in scripture, steadfast love, it's pointing to God's love that comes from his faithfulness and his covenant. He has made an agreement with his people and he will stick to that agreement because he has steadfast love built on his promise. This is a very important phrase. And David is appealing to that steadfast love of the Lord, the, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, the love that is persistent no matter the circumstances, the love that's based on God who does not lie, who set his love upon a people who did not know him for the sake of his own name. David is saying, if David's not worth saving, then Lord, save my life for the sake of you. He pleads with the Lord, turn and deliver my life. I see here, I I hear David's feelings of if this doesn't change, if the pressure does not let up, then his life is going to end. He will perish in his misery. So he makes this highest possible appeal because he's at his lowest possible place. After all this despair, if God doesn't change the situation, his life is done. And only the character of God's covenant love is a remedy to him at this point. He is saying, Lord, won't you do this? You are the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know that's who you are. Would you deliver me because of who you are? And then in verse five, he prays that God would not take away his joy. See, David didn't want just to know the love of the Lord. He wanted to proclaim the love of the Lord. He wanted to worship the Lord according to the things that the Lord had done. And so in verse five, in death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? It'd be easy to make this an evangelistic verse and to talk to, to everyone who doesn't follow the Lord and say, at death, in the grave, there's no returning to the Lord. There's no repentance. There's no second chance. It is appointed to man once to die, and after this comes judgment. That is true. If you are not a follower of Christ, let me encourage you. There are no second chances. This life is it. But in Psalm chapter 6 and verse 5, that's not the primary emphasis. David is saying, God, if I am to die, I can no longer be a part of your holy, separated people joining together to proclaim your excellencies in this world of nations who are opposed to you. David loves to worship. And at death, if he's left, if he has left this life, that opportunity is over. Now we will certainly worship the Lord in heaven, but so will everybody. And there's no 
distinction as on earth where on the Lord's day, God's people come together and we praise the name of the Lord because of the work that he has done and we are separated from the rest of the world. And I am certain that a large proportion of the people out there know that there are people like us here doing something very different for a very particular purpose. And David wanted to be a part of that. God, if you take my life, what benefit is it to you? In death, there's no more praising you. So Sheol here is not the way we normally think about hell, as in conscious torment that David is is worried about facing, as if he will go to a place like that. He is saying, God, I recognize that in death, I no longer have the opportunity to confess your goodness to people who hate you. I no longer have the opportunity to proclaim your faithfulness, your mercy, to a world full of people who don't care about you. In the silence of God, as we read, we we hear nothing from the Lord, and it's almost deafening. God does not respond just yet. David feels helpless. In verse 6, he is weary and moaning, flooding his bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. He doesn't get past this trouble, this grief. It affects him every day. Every day it's taking a toll on his body. He feels hopeless. And in verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. As if he is growing old prematurely, his body is, is decaying. He is hopeless because He has more interaction with his enemies than he does with his Lord. His body, his eye grows weak because of all his foes. He just wants God to do something. Now don't misunderstand, David is not angry with God. As we read these verses, we don't get the idea that David is complaining to God out of anger. There are some in the world, in the church, who would tell you it's okay to express anger to the Lord, to argue with him, to question him. To negotiate with God in your prayer, I'm not one of those. That's not the point of what David is saying. That's not included in David's prayer here, even though he is at the brink of this great anxiety and great despair. David is in mourning because he knows what's best. He knows where the source of his good lies, that it is with the Lord, and it seems as if the Lord is not responding. So he's continuing to knock on the door until the relief comes because it seems as if God has shut the door to his his pleading. So David is persistent. I'm sure he's worn out, but he's confident. He's resolute. If he must take his faith to the grave, then he will. He will not change his mind about the Lord. And that's the truth that gets us from verse 7 to verse 8. Because between those two verses, something has changed. David is... In great despair, in verse 7, and then in verse 8, he has great confidence even before his own enemies. Now, interpreters have seen a gap in this psalm. 
that maybe David went and spoke to a prophet or to a priest and the priest gave him some words of encouragement. Maybe David spent some time and gathered with God's people in worship and praising the Lord and that restored his confidence in the Lord. Or maybe David penned the first few verses of this psalm and then days or weeks later after he had persisted with the Lord in prayer, God answered his prayer and then he added the rest later on. Any of those options seems plausible to me. The point is, David recognized the fulfillment of his hope. The Lord is faithful. God had not forsaken David. The fact that we have the last three verses of Psalm 6 proves to us that the feelings of David here were on the brink of, of error, that they were feelings, not reality. There's a danger to letting our feelings tell us how to think. It needs to be the opposite. We need to think and tell our feelings how to feel. Now, if you are human, and I think that most all of us are, you will face despair. You will experience crisis. You will feel helpless. And it's different for each of us. It's hard for any of us to know just the depths of others' griefs. But to know the Lord is to change the outlook of human experience. Despair is satisfied by devotion to the Lord. Crisis is transformed into confidence in the Lord. Helplessness is dashed on the rocks of enduring hope in the Lord. And so the message of Psalm 6 is not don't grieve. To strive for a life that doesn't grieve is both unbiblical and misguided, it's not helpful. You will fall quicker than if you did grieve. No, the issue is not grieving, but grieving with no hope. What we need to remember from Psalm 6 is not only this experience of grief for David, but also David's example of grieving faithfully. So grieve. Whatever your despair, grieve. But stand on the pillars of faithful grieving. I have five of them for you. And I don't mean just be like David, follow his example. I mean aim for the faithfulness to God that David shows us. Let your grieving be an occasion to remember and rehearse and rest in the truths about the Lord. So number one, the first pillar you need to hold on to is the Lord is in control. I see this in Psalm 6. The very first words that David says is, O Lord, His refuge is the Lord. It's not in friends or family. It's not in food and drink. He doesn't refer to his self-esteem. David pleads with the Lord because the Lord is the one in control. The Lord is the help that he has. God is the one who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the grass of the field. The Lord stretches out the heavens like a curtain. The Lord brings princes to nothing. God created and numbered and named the stars. The Lord is the one who kills and brings to life. He is the one who brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Whatever is under the whole heaven is his. He can do all things. His purpose none can thwart. We cannot miss this basic presupposition of all the Bible that God is the one that is sovereign over all that happens. The psalmist 
David here appeals to God because he knows primarily, ultimately, only the remedy to his trouble is the Lord. Weeping may help you express your grief, do it. Exercise may help you feel better physically, do it. Listening to music may soothe your emotions, that is just fine. But only the Lord can change your circumstances. Only the Lord can give you a reason for your circumstances. Only the Lord can settle your outlook on your circumstances. Now, he may not. But if the Lord will not, everything else cannot. So the supremacy of the Lord is David's first pillar for faithful grieving. He speaks of the Lord eight times in these ten verses because the Lord is David's refuge and ever-present help in trouble. The second pillar of faithful grieving that David points us to is that the Lord does good for his people. It can feel like God's dealings are so severe that his regard is not one of a family but more of a courtroom. But brothers and sisters, don't think that the earthly trials we experience even pale in comparison to the eternal wrath of God upon the unbelieving. The trials of earth are painful, but they're only a small glimpse of the eternal wrath of God upon sinful men. There is a difference between God's punishment and God's judgment with God's discipline. See, Christ came and took the wrath of God on our behalf. And God will never pour out the full extent of his wrath on his children ever again in judgment. And so when we experience testing or training or correcting or purifying, it is to an end which is good. We experience the discipline of the Lord as God's children, not the wrath of God upon his enemies. Job's friends weren't always right but sometimes they were headed in the right direction, such as Eliphaz in Job chapter 5, when he said, Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. This is the difference between punishment and discipline. Discipline has a positive end. Punishment has no good end for the receiver. Sometimes our sense of self is too bold. We need to have a more pastel view of who we are. Sometimes we conclude that the bad things in our life are undeserved or they, they are too much to bear or they last too long. But we need to reorient our thinking around the purpose of God, not the feelings of ourselves. God is not pleased to pamper us for our most prosperous worldly experience. God is fitting his people for heaven. He is forming in us what he's already declared true about us. He's working out the process that he has already started, our holiness, in fact. And so, though discipline may feel like God is distant, like his love is waning, it is actually just the opposite. Whatever God is working in you, It is, as Hebrews 12 says, for your holiness and righteousness. As 1 Peter 1 says, so that your faith might be proven genuine. 
or 1 Peter 5, so that you would depend on the Lord more or experience the care of the Lord more. Or in James chapter 1, that your faith might become more resolute, more complete, and that you would receive the crown of life and show your love to God. Romans 8.28 is true. Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And besides, God has already shown the proof of his love, of his goodness to us. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God would not waste the payment of his son to then come and follow that up with evil upon his people. And so we confess, like Psalm chapter 30, verse five, his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God's purpose for his people is not harm, but good. And what wisdom of God that he might use even our despair to work out good in us. Well, the third pillar of faithful grieving is that the Lord makes and keeps promises. He makes and keeps promises. Verse four is the foundation. The foundation of David's plea is this fact that God makes promises and he keeps them. And this actually is precisely a picture of God's grace and salvation. Look in verse four. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Think with me. What happens to a person when he is converted to the Lord? Not only is the sinful heart of a, of a human turned to the Lord to repent of his sin and follow after the Lord, but, but the Lord turns to the sinner. He turns to deliver his life. And not for the sake of, of the redeemed one, not because there's anything good in that person, but for the sake of the name of the Lord, because of his steadfast love, because of his mercy and grace and pity, because... God overflows with love. He saves sinners. And it is a love that is not described by the ever-changing tide of passion. It is a steadfast, constant, dependable, sure love. God of all the universe might have exercised his justice instantly against everyone who's turned his back upon his creator. But instead, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, the praise to the praise of his glorious grace. So even when it feels like God has forgotten that you are family, you remember that God never forgets his promise. To the prophet Jeremiah, God gave a picture of how enduring his promise was to the nation of Israel when he was describing the new covenant. He told Jeremiah that if the sun, if the moon, if the oceans cease to operate, then the covenant with Israel will cease to exist. If anyone can exhaust the expanse of earth and space, then Israel will cease. Friends, I think that's a pretty sure explanation that God's promises do not cease. God keeps his promise. Well, the fourth pillar is simple and yet profound also. The Lord hears and answers prayer. The Lord hears and answers prayer. This entire psalm from verse 1 to 7 is a, a prayer to the Lord. 
And the reason that we are able to read it is because David is confident that the Lord will hear him. And in fact, in verse 8, 9, and 10, he is declaring that very thing. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David has prayed, and God has heard and answered. Now, often, we tend to distance ourselves from God when he feels distant to us. But like the psalmist who pleaded with God, who was confident of God's hearing, confident of God's answering, we must grieve and plead with God standing on the truth that God hears what we pray and God will answer the prayer. The answer that David received from the Lord gave him such great confidence that he was not, not simply complaining about his enemies like in verse 7, but he could go to them and rebuke them because of God's work in his life. Now, the enemies of David are real enemies, but they are also symbolic of all of God's enemies and even enemies of God's people. I don't want you to leave worship this morning and go find all your enemies and start rebuking them. That's not the purpose of David's words or the scripture in verse 8, 9, and 10. But see here that David's enemies, God's enemies, are the ones that are furthest from the presence of God. So David had at once felt like an enemy of God separated far from the Lord, but these are the ones who really are truly separated far from the Lord. These enemies are the, the antithesis, the opposite of what Psalm 6 has been declaring. David is in distress, but he's hopeful of a response from the Lord. David is confident in the faithfulness of the Lord. David will realize his faith working out according to his hope. But on the other hand, his enemies are confident in themselves. They are working out their own plan for David's downfall. They are opposed to the Lord, but they will not recognize their plans. They will not realize their hope. They will not succeed. They will be ashamed. They will be greatly troubled. When God turns to David as he prayed in verse 4, then David's enemies turn away from their work. When God relieves David from his trouble, as he has mentioned several times, then David's enemies are the ones to receive great trouble. When, David, when David's hope is fulfilled by the Lord, then David's enemies are put to shame. These represent the opposite hope of all of God's people. Now this might sound a bit vengeful, but David's prayers are honorable. So anyone who is opposed to David's honorable prayers to the Lord is essentially opposed to the Lord himself. And the routing of these enemies is indicative of the Lord's victory over all his enemies. So as David prays and recognizes that his enemies are troubled and turned away and ashamed, then David recognizes that his hope is being fulfilled. Because the Lord is victorious over his enemies and the Lord keeps his promise for David's hope. Friends, your sadness, your despair is temporary because your relief is as certain as the Lord's victory over all his enemies. And so we can stand firm even in the grieving process because 
God hears and answers prayer, even to the point of finding victory over the troubles. Now let me encourage you, these foundations are best set before the grieving process happens. Builders don't go out and build a wall and then try to plug in a foundation underneath the wall that it needs to rest on. No, it's better done the other way. Set the foundation and then when you need the strength of the foundation, the wall can rest on it. So I would encourage you, be convinced of the greatness and the goodness of the Lord before you have to make a withdrawal. And it will be much easier to grieve faithfully because the Lord is in control. The Lord does good for his people. The Lord makes and keeps promises. The Lord hears and answers prayer. And I have one more pillar for you. You are not alone. Sadness, despair, grief is not foreign to human life. Simply to live in this world full of sin is to to experience heartache in some way or another sadness in one way or another. Psalm 6 has here described to us David's experience, even as God's chosen king over the nation of Israel. We could all write our own experience of despair and sadness at some point in our life. I've recently been fascinated by the missionary John Patton. You may have heard of him. A missionary to the New Hebrides Islands who stood upon the character of God to fuel his ministry. And had he not rested on who God is, he would have quickly failed. John Patton took the gospel to the cannibals on the island of Tana in the South Pacific in 1858. He landed in November, and within five months, his wife and newborn son had died from fever. And so he was alone for the next four years by himself, seeking to pass on the gospel to the natives on this island. And for four years, he was facing constant attack. He slept with his clothes on so that if he needed to, he could wake up and run. He depended on his dog to bark at threats coming. He was often surrounded, held at gunpoint, held at the edge of a knife. He repeatedly faced immeasurable, difficult circumstances. But his faith was resolved in prayer. And I'll just read to you one example of of his story. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our Lord, our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to, to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. And eventually John Patton was run off the island by the, the islanders there who blamed him for many of their troubles. But later he returned with a, a second wife and children and, and he remained there until in his 80s when he was faithful until his old age, serving the people of these islands because of his great faith in the Lord who had planted him there and strengthened him there. You are not alone, but you're not alone in an even greater way beyond David, beyond men like John Patton. You're not alone because of Christ. Bend your thoughts to the greater David because Christ 
goes further. If you have a Bible, would you find Mark chapter 14? If you leave with nothing else today, thinking about grief and anxiety, remember these thoughts about Christ. Because in Mark chapter 14, we see that Christ identifies with this anxiety that David felt and that many of us feel. Look in verse 32 and listen for the ways that Christ identifies with what we've read in Psalm 6. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. In the very next paragraph, we read that Judas, the emblematic enemy of Christ, was there to turn him over to the authorities. And Did you hear the parallels that David experienced with what Christ has experienced? He mentions that he was greatly distressed, that he was troubled, His soul is sorrowful even to death. He resorts to prayer to the Lord as his help and his refuge. He he falls down to pray, and I get there a sense of weakness, not that he just kneeled, but he fell. Christ in the garden had friends who were leaving him. They were not faithful to him. Christ pleads to the Lord to have the suffering pass from him, but he's confident in God's plan Not my will, but your will be done. The gospel writer Luke adds that Christ was in agony, sweating drops of blood. And then before this whole account is over, his enemies are present. They did not turn back. And this is where the parallel with Psalm 6 ends. Because Christ suffered all the way. Christ suffered the designs of his enemies, with great despair, with great agony, with trouble. And yet, it was not the attacks of his enemies with which Christ was in such agony. You may know the story on the cross. Christ actually prays for his enemies. And then when he calls out to the Lord, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where David found mercy, Christ endured all the way to actual separation from God. And because of Christ's despair, church, we who have agony and anxiety and despair in this world can aim and hope for a lasting presence with the Lord. Because Christ experienced separation from God, we will never experience separation from God.
He took that punishment for you. He took that punishment for me. And so now we praise a Savior who suffered to restore sinners to the presence of God for eternity. And so Christ holds the right to say, in an even greater way than David said, depart from me, you workers of evil. You would provoke and persecute and offend the holiness of God and the joy of God's people, but I have suffered through the end of your terrors that you may not contaminate the good presence of God. Depart from me forever. And so David rebuked his enemies on earth. Depart from me, you who do evil. But Christ rebukes his enemies for all eternity. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And so our audience with the Lord in eternity will not ever be provoked by any sort of enemy. It will be a pure and holy and lasting presence with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grief on this earth is at times seemingly unbearable. But as a person, you're not alone. David, God's king, had similar experience, but even greater than that, Christ, the greater David, God's final king, knows your trouble. He has felt that experience all the way to its bitter end, and he overcame and defeated the greatest enemy, death, and final separation from God. And so now no trouble befalls you who rests in Christ. That is the hope that Christ has purchased and passes on to you. And so we sing, abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless, ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where's death sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. One of my favorite statements of the gospel is found in the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. The question says, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You must answer the question, will you trust the Lord? The scripture, the testimony of the Bible, tells us that he's worth it. Is he worth your trust no matter what happens to you? What do you say? Let's pray.